Democracy in Peril. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. One of America's most revered magazines, The New Republic, is out with its May 2022 democracy issue. The reporting, the findings are simply stark and startling. 67% of Democrats, according to a poll, believe that democracy is under threat. 80% of Republicans believe that democracy is under threat. Here to talk about all of this is Michael Tomaski. He is the editor of The New Republic. Michael, thanks for joining us. What's What's driving these numbers? Uh, polarization, pessimism, uh, darkness, cynicism, and most of all, David, uh, two really different conceptions uh, between Democrats and Republicans, between liberals and conservatives about what democracy is and what this country should be. And you go into that in a number of articles and essays. It's a clear distinction also about the role of government, correct? Very clear distinction about the role of government, uh, you know, Democrats and liberals, of course. I mean, these findings in the poll, the poll, we commissioned a poll that is one part of the issue. The issue consists of many, many different articles. Every article in the, in the uh, issue of the magazine has something to do with the crisis democracy confronts. But the poll was one part of that. And the poll findings aren't shocking, but they're illuminating and depressing. And uh, and uh, they tell you something about just uh, how differently we see things like the role of government, like the definition of freedom, uh, like uh, the various, the particular things that are plaguing our democracy, which are obviously very different uh, depending on who you ask. Well, let's 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 start right there in terms of what is plaguing democracy. How do Republicans see it, and and how do Democrats see it? Well, Republicans see it. You know, we've we've lost God. We we've we've lost our way, and and you know, there's too much licentiousness in the society. Democrats in the poll see the obstacles that that I see, and that I believe the Young Turks see. Generally speaking, you know, the 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 Senate. The electoral college, the filibuster, and the rest of it. Um, the one point on which respondents from both parties agreed, which was pretty interesting to me, was that even Republicans agreed uh, that the power of big money in politics is far too great. Yeah, that that has often been where some progressives and also people on on the right seem to sort of come around and find at least some renewed hope for shared agreement, but it never really seems to, to go anywhere. Mm. Um, if money were to be able to take in, be taken out of politics, how much of that do you think would, would solve some of the problems that both parties see? Well, it would go some way towards solving things, I think. But remember, you know, money is not just campaign contributions, money is lobbying. Right? <laughs> I mean, they spend more lobbying and, and getting Congress to do their bidding. And, and write regulations favorable to corporations than they spend on campaigns. So you're talking about trying to get money out of politics. Ideally, you're talking about both things. I don't know if there's a legal mechanism by which you can get money out of the lobbying business. I think that that ship has sailed uh, in campaign finance. You know, given this Supreme Court, uh, that ship too has sailed. But if there is a different Supreme Court someday, we can see a reversal of Citizens United and a series of decisions that democratize our process and that do not and that no longer equate money with speech, which was 
something the Supreme Court decided in the 1970s, which has had obviously very unfortunate ramifications for us. The viciousness of the partisanship uh, is uh, is really stunning. Uh, one of the poll numbers found that 43% of Democrats, 47% of Republicans see members of the other party, not just as political opponents, but as political enemies who are a threat. Nearly half of each party sees the others as a threat. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, no particular difference between the two, a four point difference as you say, but that's within the margin of error of this poll, which was around a thousand people, I think. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's uh, that's a pretty stark finding, you know, enemies, enemies. And um, you know, uh, that number's probably only gonna get bigger. How do you, um, how much of that number, how much of that sort of coarseness in terms of how we view people with different political views, um, do you trace to the sort of the, the world of Trump and how much our language became sort of more coarse and more harsh and insults became uh, more acceptable? I think uh, I trace a lot of it to Trump, but I trace it to to the the right, you know, the Gingrich right pre-Trump. You know, the, the 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 I trace it to the 90s and the rise of Gingrich and the rise of Rush Limbaugh happened at the same time. Fox News Channel comes along just a few years later in 1996. Uh, just before the 1996 election was held, and and the growth uh, in recent years, the explosive growth of right-wing media. Which you know, when you say that phrase, David, to people, right-wing media, most people think, ah, oh, Fox News, a couple other things. But no, it is so multi-tentacled now, as you know, Fox News and One America and Newsmax and so much local radio and so many local television operations now owned by Sinclair and other avowedly right-wing operators. Uh, uh, it's a vast, vast network. You know, it, it's probably, I bet it's bigger than the mainstream media at this point. Yeah, and certainly with the internet and all the platforms that everybody has now that didn't exist back uh, 26 years yeah. ago when Fox News was starting up in 1996. Given that ability that we have in our society now to essentially live in our own bubble where we can have everything sort of affirmed for us, whatever our beliefs are, um, what role does that play in all of this? Well, yeah, that plays a, that plays a very big role. Uh, but you know, I would say that you know the left wing bubble is not equivalent to the right wing bubble. I mean, if if you say that the left wing bubble includes the New York Times and National Public Radio and outlets like that, the Washington Post, which which conservatives would say, well. Those those outlets are still giving like an honest, straightforward, objective account of the news. They have certain liberal cultural biases, and of course, their editorial pages are are, are liberal, the Times and the Post. But they're not avowedly left in anything remotely like the way uh, conservative properties are avowedly right. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of audiences in the past about having worked at Fox News and MSNBC and CNN and Al Jazeera and I-24 and now TYT. And I've said repeatedly that even TYT, I would suggest, is not as liberal, as, as doctrinaire as Fox News is conservative. That there's a, there's a strain of truthism, there's a strain of factual reporting that I think threads through the left far more than the right. And yet there are people on the right who don't see it that way at all. They're, they're convinced that MSNBC is just as terrible to the left as Fox News might be to the right. Well, they've been told this uh, repeatedly, you know, on a basically daily basis for years. But, you know, the, the difference, or one of the differences, is, is that you know, MSNBC will criticize Joe Biden when he merits criticism. MSNBC criticized Barack Obama 
uh, you know, on a number of things. Um, uh, I don't think Fox will ever criticize Donald Trump, ever. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe softly a few times, but, you know, that's just not how that works. The, the Fox, Fox's project is much more avowedly to protect and elect Republicans. As you put this uh, special issue together, you made the assignments, you got the essays and the reporting back. Was there anything that surprised you about some of the things that your correspondents and reporters had found? Uh, I think the most surprising and, and disturbing piece to me was a, a, an essay piece, not a reported piece by a woman named Barbara Walter. She's an academic at University of California, San Diego, and she's a specialist on um, civil wars. She has been part of an American government Commission that studies the uh, rise and eruption of civil wars around the world and and the and the conditions in countries that lead to civil wars, which she writes has have been on the rise in in recent decades, uh, and she listed off uh, the main criteria, three or four criteria, uh, for what conditions lead to civil wars, and they described the United States of America like to a T. Except without, I mean, the perception that many Americans have is, oh, you know, battles at Gettysburg, where you know troops line up on either side of a field and, and kill each other. But the reality is that civil wars tend to sort of start much more sort of slowly. Uh, that the conflict does not start in terms of a violent conflict necessarily. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and you know, the the run up to our own civil war started with uh, you could date it to a lot of different things, but you could date it to say the Fugitive Slave Act of 19, 1850, and then in increments and steps from there until Lincoln's victory in 1860 finally set off the secession movement, uh, beginning with South Carolina. So yeah, things take time, and you know, I'm not saying we're Definitely headed toward a shooting civil war, uh, but I could envision, you know, I could envision uh, uh, Trump raising a standing army mm-hmm. that is separate and distinct from either a our national army or b our law enforcement agencies. You know, that is kind of Trump's army, and and you know, it's 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 not ridiculous to think of that possibility. And then where does that take us? Well, one of the things that in terms of the future where things take us is one of the poll numbers also found that 67% of Republicans said they would not accept a Democratic winner in 2024 based on the election results. Democrats, 88% would accept a a Republican who won only 67% of Republicans. So in other words, one out of every three Republicans is not gonna accept the outcome if a Democrat wins. How do we unwind this? Boy, I, I, that's a tough one. I don't know. I mean, they they have been so persuaded uh, by Trump and and all the other people working with him over these last few uh, couple of years that that the 2020 election was stolen. I just don't now know how you put that genie back in that bottle. And but you know, it's we'll see what happens in 2024. But I'm I'm really really nervous about you know the possibility of the election being stolen and the possibility of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, an election being stolen, violence, and also, of course, even less faith um, in the US democracy, um, an experiment that a lot of people never thought would get to this point. Um, but in any case, it is a fascinating, fascinating issue. The New Republic's uh, May 2022 democracy issue. Um, it's not, um, it's not, uh, um, 
it's not really optimistic <laughs> essays and reportings and it won't make you feel great, but it, I always learn something whenever I read the New Republic. So Michael, thanks so much for joining us today, I appreciate it. I'm really grateful for having me, thank you David. Got it, thank you. The Supreme Court and reproductive rights. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. As you know by now, Politico has been reporting this week that it obtained a draft opinion from February, which indicated the Supreme Court had five justices ready to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark case in the early 1970s that legalized abortion rights. Um, so what now is the Supreme Court really gonna follow forward with this and, and then what? Here to talk about this, Alencia Johnson, she's a Democratic strategist who worked on the Biden campaign. She was also a former director of Planned Parenthood. Uh, Alencia, do you believe that this opinion suggesting being written by Alito with four other conservative justices does reflect what the court's gonna do ultimately when the formal opinion comes down? I 100% absolutely believe that it reflects what the court wants to do because the reality is those five justices, they were hand selected because of their anti-abortion stance, unfortunately. And they have made it clear through their records as well as the fact that in our political environment, Conservatives, unfortunately, have made abortion such a political issue and made it the conservative issue. And so we see this as a draft opinion. Yes, it's a draft and yes, for the list of the viewers here to know that health centers are still open, abortion is still legal. But it is signaling that this is where this opinion is going to go when the final decision comes down in June. There has been some reaction on Capitol Hill. Bernie Sanders, for example, has suggested that we should change the Senate filibuster rules and then have an up or down vote on Roe versus, Roe versus Wade and, and abortion rights. And yet the White House has pushed back saying that even if you change the filibuster and require you know, only 50 votes, there still are not 51 votes for the Democrats to codify Roe versus Wade. What do you make of that? Well, I think it shows you some of the frustration in the Democratic Party and the frustration that we are not bold enough in pushing people to get in line. If this was the opposite side of the aisle, it doesn't matter what ideology or what end of the spectrum you're on. If you're a Republican, you vote Republican. And so on Democratic side, we have to change the filibuster rules because I've heard the arguments that, well, if we do this to codify Roe, Republicans are going to do the same thing and change the filibuster rules to do whatever they need to get their agenda passed. That's true, whether or not we get rid of the filibuster. So one, we should, and two, the highest elected Democrat should be pushing the party, every single member of the party into falling in line. This is about abortion rights, this is about our base. This is also about delivering for Democrats who want us to do something. Our party should not be beheld in to one or two senators who unfortunately are trying to play this moderate political game, but that's actually not going to work and it's going to it's going against what the 70% of Americans want, and that is to not see Roe v. Wade overturned. And so I agree with Senator Sanders. I agree with my former boss, Senator Elizabeth Warren, in the filibuster and move forward so we can codify Roe. That one senator seems to be a Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia. He's staunchly opposed to codifying Roe versus Wade, generally seems to be against abortion rights. His poll numbers have been rising over the last year and a half, despite his defiance of, or maybe because of his defiance of the Biden administration. So what if anything, what sort of leverage would a Biden administration have with a Senator Manchin to try to convince him, hey, this is really important, you gotta do it? Well, I think it's the conversation of, is he going along with democratic values? It is in our party platform 
to be pro-choice. It is in our party platform to remove the Hyde Amendment, to also ensure that we are protecting abortion rights. It's also poll numbers show that again, 70% of Americans, which I'm pretty sure the numbers are very similar in, in West Virginia, really do support protections of access to abortion care. Now, of course, people of all ideologies have a varying degree of what they believe that looks like. But I'm pretty sure in a state that has such horrific healthcare outcomes for low income people, has so many issues when it comes to poverty, that they actually need to understand that abortion care would help solve some of those issues in regards to making sure that people have access to the care that they need. And so there's this conversation to be had with Senator Joe Manchin. And then I'm gonna take the White House outside of this and I'm just gonna put on my democratic strategist hat. Hmm. If Joe Manchin doesn't get in line, he should be challenged. He should not actually be sitting in that Democratic seat if he is not going to do what the will of the people is, and that is to protect abortion care and to not be beheld into the special interests that continue to line his pockets so that he doesn't fall in line with what the majority of people want. Yeah, there are a lot of progressives. I think Joe Manchin should have been challenged by a progressive anyway, simply because of his blocking of minimum wage and everything else that on the Democratic agenda Absolutely. that he seems to have put on ice. Um, what now? I mean, if the Supreme Court goes ahead and gets rid of Roe versus Wade, it turns it back to the states. There will be some states which will protect abortion rights. There will be some states, mostly I imagine Republican states in the South, where it'll be next to impossible for women to, to get an abortion. Um, what then? You know, there are several states that have trigger laws on the books just ready for this decision to come down in their favor to overturn Roe v. Wade and overturn abortion access. And then there are some states, uh, of course, Democratic states. Uh, you, you mentioned it, yes, these are Republican-led states that have these trigger laws and Democratic states. A lot of them have laws that expand and protect access. You know, honestly, and this is really sad to say, I really think this is going to galvanize people and bring back the enthusiasm that Democrats in our base and including independents and swing voters really need going into November. And so what we need to do as Democrats, Understanding that this could actually end up being the final opinion. You know, the, the Supreme Court told us that this was an actual, a very real document. So we won't know whether or not this is where they are going to rule, but we need to operate as if it is. And so therefore we have to take this momentum and continue to build upon it and through November. Because if you overlay a map of where all of our rights are being taken away from voting rights to the attacks on the LGBTQ communities to we also have a big immigration case that's going to be coming up in June where dangerous immigration laws are being passed. They all overlap in these states that they're taking away a reproductive rights, abortion rights. And Democrats need to make that case very forcefully and the way that Vice President Harris did last night at the Emily's List um, uh, gala, which I was so glad to hear that energy. We need that same energy from today up until the election day in November. And in terms of lighting a fire under Democrats and changing the dynamics of the 2022 midterms, um, as a strategist, is it better uh, that this came out now uh, to sort of change the dynamics of the of perhaps the discussion about the midterms, or would it have been with the shock value if this had say come out? You know, the first week in July when the Supreme Court normally makes its big news, would that have been better if this had been pushed back a bit? I'm honestly grateful that it came out now so that people can start paying attention. Too often, voters start to get engaged in the fall. And to be honest, Democrats and actually campaigns on both sides start to take the summer and really start talking to voters. But right now, we are having this conversation going into primaries for Senate races, congressional races, governor's races. And so 
we are able to use this now as a critical issue and almost a test for Democratic candidates up and down the ballot from your congressional candidates all the way to your governor's candidates to state legislatures to have a conversation about where they stand. I'm so grateful that Senator Schumer said we are going to have a vote in the Senate next week about the whole Women's Health Protection Act so that we know where people stand. And I think it's imperative that we're using this moment and I'm grateful for this moment before people check out over the summer and they know what's at stake so they can stay engaged for the next six months until the midterms. Some of the women in my family who are older than, than me um, say it is just unfathomable that um, 50 years after Roe, there's a possibility now that Roe versus Wade might be rolled back, that there might be states where they lose sort of abortion rights. And um, the family members are just sort of flummoxed. They're both shocked, uh, maybe not surprised because they've seen what the Republicans have been doing. But there's the big question of, well, what do we do now in terms of citizen activism and in terms of getting involved? Is it enough now just to pay attention to where people's position is on abortion in terms of the fall elections? Should there be marches? Should there be demonstrations? How do people express their anger in a way that's productive? I'm so glad you asked that question because I get that question all of the time. Yes, be paying attention. Get out there and rally at your state houses, also at your city councils. Get out there and rally in a very respectful way. We don't promote violence, but show peaceful demonstrations that this is a critical issue. Also, please, please, please donate to abortion funds. Yes, donate to large reproductive rights organizations, but also pay attention to these smaller abortion funds that are actually going to fill the gap for these women who will be in these trigger law states. And they need to get to an Illinois or a Colorado or a California or a New York to get abortion access. So we have to figure out a way to do to walk in two gums, do two things at the same time. One, ensure that the immediate need for the people who will be impacted the most, which are typically low income women, people who are in rural areas, people who are wage workers, women of color, that's who the attack is really going to 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 impact the most. Make sure that they are supported through the abortion funds. And at the same time, call your senators, call your members of Congress, call your governor's office, call your district attorneys and make sure they know where you stand on the issue. And then when you find the candidate that is running for election in your district or wherever you are, make sure that you are working for them and helping them cross the finish line and get elected in November. Given the polling numbers you mentioned, 70% of Americans support abortion rights under Roe. Um, I suppose not much of a surprise, therefore, that Fox would try to change the narrative and make it less about, well, these rights might be taken away and more. All the institution of the United States Supreme Court somehow has been damaged, as if the Supreme Court sort of damage would be somehow more than what women would be going through. But having said that, there is something, I suppose, within Washington about a leak of this kind. Should there be an investigation? Should the FBI get involved in your estimation? So my activist hat says, God bless the person who leaked this <laughs> uh, to leak this opinion because we needed to know where they are thinking. And if we're talking about the legitimacy of the court, I'm so sorry. They put Justice Kavanaugh on the court and there was all of this overwhelming evidence that he sexually assaulted someone. So I'm sorry, conservatives have already delegitimized the court. And so they wanna talk about this now about a leak when they, to your point, what you just said, they care more about a leak and looking like the party that uh, actually operates uh, under the guise of statesmanship, when yet to your point, they don't care about women. This is the party that says we're the party of family values. Well, you don't care about abortion rights. You won't pass paid family leave. You won't give us universal childcare. So what is it that you actually stand for? And to be honest, like I said, I'm grateful that this was leaked so that people uh, could use this moment to galvanize and also see exactly 
where the conservatives stand. And also, if we want to talk about whether or not the court is operating with integrity, let's talk about there's a justice there who has a wife who was calling the chief of staff under the Trump White House and telling him that we're going to do everything we can to make sure Trump is still elected in office. So I'm sorry, Fox News, you have something else that you want to talk about when he talks about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and funny how Fox News decided they didn't want to touch the story about Clarence Thomas's wife, but in any case. Like amnesia. <laughs> yeah, um, Alencia Johnson, Democratic strategist, worked in the Biden campaign, former director of Planned Parenthood. Um, Alencia, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that is our conversation for today. On behalf of Alyssa Sammons, Craig Lowry, Gina Kim, Asher Cofield, and the entire gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for joining us.